Thank you, Deacon Wesley. Now, it's great, isn't it? I haven't seen this number of chairs since two years ago. Uh, we praise and thank God for that, and uh, we hope that every seat will be filled up soon. Now, the best way to follow the sermon is really to have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10, and if you find it helpful to have an outline, you could download it from our webpage, our website, and uh, you download the bulletin and the outline will be in there. Now, my son, Adriel, was born in Sydney, Australia, when I was finishing my last year in Bible college. Now, he was born in August, and we were looking to come back to Singapore at the end of the year. Now, when he was young, my daughter often teased him that he's an Aussie. Now, the interesting thing is that Adriel was born stateless. In other words, he belonged to no country. So as Mason and I were not Australian PRs or, or citizens, the policy is that our child will not be considered an Aussie, even though he was born on Australia soil. Now, it's not that we want to either. However, that's understandable, but he was also not considered a Singaporean automatically. He was literally stateless. Now that's a problem, right? We need to get him his citizenship in order for him to get a passport to fly back to Singapore. Now, in order to apply for citizenship, we need to first submit his birth certificate together with our marriage certificate. However, we had to wait for two months, two months before we could get his birth certificate. Yes, two months. Trust me, I never complained about Singapore's efficiency since then. Well, thankfully, it was smooth after that. We submitted our documents online, and the Singapore Embassy in Canberra sent us Adriel's uh, uh, certificate of citizenship and also the passport. So we are all ready to fly back to Singapore. I finished my exams, submitted my thesis, attended the graduation, and packed all our stuff. But guess what? Right at the airport, the immigration officer stopped us from proceeding further and ushered us into a corner, into a room. Wow, we don't look like terrorists, do we? So another officer came and then spoke to us sternly and asked us, asked us whether we have applied a visa for Adriel. And then we were like totally baffled. Why do we need a visa to return to our home country? Now, to be honest, I still have not figured that out yet, right, what the issue was. But it seemed that the rest of the family, the rest of us, we were on visas that allow us to make multiple trips in and out of Australia. But Adriel had none. So they warned us again and again that if Adriel leaves Australia without a visa, he wouldn't be able to return. So we had to assure them, no, we are not returning anytime soon. In fact, we have not gone back ever since then. Maybe he couldn't get in. Well, I was done with my studies, right? We literally were pleading to them, just let us go. And we will bear all the consequences of not having that visa. So thankfully, they relented after a while with more warnings and we boarded the plane to come home. Wow, what a journey. How much effort 
was needed for us to enter Singapore. Surely not what we expected. Now for the Jews in Jesus' time, their greatest hope is to enter the kingdom of God. And as we will see later on, it is synonymous with inheriting eternal life. Hence, it is of paramount importance for them to figure that out. How can anyone enter the kingdom of God? And that is what we want and need to find out as well. Whether we have eternal life or not is dependent on that answer. How can anyone enter the kingdom of God? Now, the answer to that question will be found in Jesus' encounter with three groups of people, each bringing a different issue. How can anyone enter the kingdom of God? Firstly, it is to reject worldly values that permit sin and take on the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, Jesus went to the region of Judea and crossed over to the other side of the River Jordan. As per normal, Jesus taught the crowd that gathered. So the Pharisees came up to Jesus and asked him a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, in those days, divorce by the husband was widely accepted and practiced. The Pharisaic schools already allowed divorce, but they have different, differing uh, strictness or degree of strictness about that. So in the Mishnah, which is the written form of the oral traditions, it reads, and I read that for you, the school of Shammai say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. For it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. And then another school, the school of Hillel says, He may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written because he had found in her indecency in anything. And then there's this Akiba who says that even if he found another fairer than her, than she, for it is written, it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. So as you can see, it's widely accepted, widely practiced. So when they come to Jesus with this, perhaps they were asking Jesus what the accepted grounds for divorce are among all these differing schools. However, it, is, it does not seem to be so because verse 2 tells us that the Pharisees came to test Jesus. See, the motive behind that question was hostile. See, what were they trying to achieve? Now, it may be known to many that Jesus had a far more radical and conservative view of divorce. It's especially so if Jesus is seen to be close to John the Baptist. Now, that will potentially put Jesus at odds with the predominant view of the public and all these Pharisaic schools which allow divorce. See, the aim of the Pharisees was then to make Jesus less popular. Or perhaps the Pharisees may be trying to put Jesus at odds with Moses and the Torah. See, the Pharisees have generally accepted divorce based on Moses' word 
in Deuteronomy chapter 24. See, if Jesus went against it, it would put Jesus in a bad light against, against uh, this much revered prophet and also of the law. But I think thirdly and most likely, the Pharisees were probably trying to get Jesus in trouble with Herod Antipas. Because Jesus was probably at this place called Perea, which was across the Jordan River. It was approximately where John the Baptist was baptizing people. It was also the area where Herod Antipas governed. If you remember from Mark 6, John the Baptist, he was beheaded by Herod because John opposed Herod's marriage with Herodias. Because both of them have divorced their spouses in order to marry each other. So as you can see, getting Jesus to make his stance clear against divorce and remarriage may incur Herod's wrath. They were probably doing so, hoping that Jesus will land up in the same fate as John the Baptist. See, the questioning by the Pharisees wasn't sincere at all. In Chinese, this is called 借刀杀人, right? Boring someone else's sword to commit murder. But outsmarting the Pharisees once again, Jesus did not answer them directly, but asked them a question instead. What did Moses command you? And they replied in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And here is where Jesus exposed their sin and exerted God's radical demands in his kingdom. Jesus made it clear in verse 5 that it was the hardness of people's heart that Moses gave them this commandment. Now, in order to know what Jesus is saying, we must go back to the Old Testament and look at the specific command in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 to 4. Now, let me read that for you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving to you as for an inheritance. Now, if you look at this passage carefully, Moses neither commanded nor gave permission to divorce. See, verse, verses 1 to 3 assume that a divorce has already happened and a certificate has been given to the wife. In other words, divorce has, was already an accepted practice. The first three verses were merely the conditions or the description of the situation with the many Eves. Moses' command, Moses' commandment is, all, is only stated in verse 4. 
The commandment is that the first husband cannot remarry his divorced wife after she has remarried someone else. Now, why might Moses give such a commandment? Well, now it seems that many husbands at that time has been easy with divorcing their wives. If they found that they were no longer attractive, they burned their dinner or, or anything trivial. The need to give the wife a certificate is in a way to protect them so that they can legitimately marry someone else without being guilty of adultery. Now that was particularly important because women then were dependent on the men. But even that was not commanded by Moses, contrary to what the Pharisees said. Moses' commandment was for the husband not to remarry their divorced wife if she has remarried someone else. The aim was to make him think twice and not hastily divorce his wife because he may not get her back. And as many commentators say, Moses' commandment was to protect the woman from being kicked around by irresponsible men. Therefore, what Moses commanded was to protect the woman. It's not a license to divorce. It was the hard-heartedness of man which was the stubborn rebellion against God that such a command has to be given. But nonetheless, it showed that Moses acknowledged that this sinful hard-heartedness created a sad and less than desirable situation. Hence, this commandment is a concession. It is not God's intention. What then is God's intention? What is His purpose for marriage? Well, Jesus spelled it out in verses 6 to 9. See, in these verses, Jesus quoted firstly from Genesis 1 verse 27. This is to show that God's intention for marriage is between one man and one woman right from the beginning. He then quoted from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, a man in marriage is to leave his parents and to form a new family unit and is to hold fast to his wife. It's the idea that they are to cleave together, to be glued together so that they are no longer two but one. Hence, they are not to be separated after that. And Jesus conveyed the idea in verse 9. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, very often we think that marriage is merely a choice between a man and a woman. But verse 9 tells us that God is the one who joined a married couple together. God is the Lord over their union and not man. Therefore, no human being is to separate what God has joined together. So my friends, hear this about marriage. This is God's original blueprint. Marriage is meant to be a permanent union between a man and a woman which cannot be separated. It is God's design since creation and before the fall. As such, the Pharisees and the society in general at the time 
I could say even now, has gotten it all wrong. They made what Moses meant as protection after sin to become permission to sin. They made what was love for the oppressed to become a license to oppress. In doing so, they continue to commit adultery in God's eyes. They were breaking the seventh commandment while claiming to keep the law. So with that, Jesus is, is using this opportunity to, to continue to teach about his upside-down values in his kingdom. Since his first prediction of his death, Jesus has been teaching his disciples the radical demands of faith, of humility, and of servanthood in God's kingdom. And now Jesus is continuing that in chapter 10. Jesus went back to the fundamental principles laid out by God, which are totally different from the world's values and practices. Hence, they must reject these worldly values and to adopt the radical demand and the values of God's upside-down kingdom. See, as we can see from the issue of divorce, the demands and the values of God's kingdom are not merely about fulfilling the laws and regulation. For it is the heart, the heart that matters to God. See, their practices show that they were just hiding behind, hiding behind their own laws and the misinterpretation, misinterpretation of the scriptures to justify their sinful behavior. Now, I used to send my children to school by car every morning. Now, after I go into the school, drop them off, and I turn out, uh, I will often head out for breakfast. Then when I drive out the school, it is in the opposite direction of where I want to go to have my breakfast. And there wasn't a U-turn uh, anytime soon down the road. That means that I probably have to take a big detour before I get to where I wanted to go. However, there is this right turning into a car park that I could make an illegal U-turn. Now, I knew it was against the law, but I said to myself, it's okay, lah. there's no cars on the other side. Right? It's safe, and I can save time. I can save petrol, which certainly will help to save the earth. So it's all right, make that U-turn. And I did. And I was caught. <laughs> now, as you can see, see, we're all very good at justifying ourselves. See, we can, we can, this can be said of many different aspects of, of life, right? We tell ourselves, oh, God wants us to be happy, right? So there's nothing wrong with me pursuing any relationships or doing anything that will help make me happy even if it's clearly wrong in God's eye. And surely if you look hard enough, you will always find someone else out there who will justify and support your view by misquoting Scripture. Similarly, we indulge in our vain pursuit of riches and worldly success and justify it by saying, 
But there is nothing wrong with always bettering ourselves. We can even buttress our justification by saying, now if we gain more, we can give more. And I can tell you, there's no lack of so-called Christian teachings out there to lend you support in believing and behaving that way. So with that, we come back to our question today. How can anyone enter the kingdom of God? Firstly, we are to reject worldly values that permit sin and take on the upside-down values of His kingdom. We are not to justify our stubborn rebellion against God, but to adhere to the radical demands of His kingdom. But secondly, we are to reject worldly values that breeds pride and receive the kingdom of God like a child, utterly dependent on Him. This is the second encounter of Jesus in our passage today. A group of very young children were brought to Jesus, presumably by their parents, and they were hoping that Jesus will touch them, which means to bless them in prayer and by placing his hands on them. However, the disciples rebuked them and stopped them from coming to Jesus. Why did the disciples rebuke them? Were they concerned that Jesus would be distracted or exhausted by these children? Nonetheless, it reveals that their worldly beliefs that children are unimportant, they are insignificant. Now, children today are mostly considered precious. Now, we do all sorts of things, uh, spend all significant amounts of money, to make them happy, to develop them, to make sure they do well in school and life, right? However, young children in those days, they were considered unimportant and a nuisance till they grow up and become useful. As such, the disciples were perhaps thinking that the children are too unimportant to warrant Jesus' attention. In other words, the disciples were displaying the attitudes and the values that are more in line with the world then. It is a wrong understanding of status and importance. So what was Jesus' response? Jesus was indignant, which means he was annoyed and he was angry at the disciples. See, Jesus had taught them previously in Mark 9 about being a servant instead of being great. And he told them that receiving a child in his name is equivalent to receiving him. Yet the disciples were still not getting it. Hence, Jesus was indignant at their failure to learn from their mistakes and also at their worldly attitude and preoccupation with status and greatness. So once again, Jesus used this encounter to teach about the kingdom of God. Jesus said to them in verses 14 to 15, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child 
shall not enter it. Now, Jesus was teaching the disciples about entering the kingdom of God. See, one must receive the kingdom of God like a child in order to enter it. Now, that does not mean that all children will enter the kingdom of God. That's not the point. Neither is Jesus suggesting that one must have the virtues of, of innocence, you know, or, or gentleness, or humility in order to enter. The emphasis is how one must have the attitude and manner of a child in receiving the kingdom of God. Now, if you look around in church, who are the most tired people around? No, they are not the pastors, not the church staff. They are the parents of young babies and children. You see, young children are helpless and totally dependent on their parents for care and provision. They are not able to work for their food. They are not able to work for their clothing. They are very young. They cannot even feed themselves or clean themselves. And even when they grow a bit older and started to, starting to walk, they still do not know what danger is and how to cross the road. So you have to constantly be around them. And you know, when children are very young, packing for the family to leave the house, it was so tedious. You must pack meals, pack snacks, pack water, pack nappies, pack wet tissues, bottles and extra clothes, and all the parents say, Amen, right? So we must welcome them and applaud them for making the effort to come for services despite not having children's church at the moment. But my friends, the main point is this. Young children are helpless and totally dependent on others. They have nothing, nothing unless someone gives them something. So likewise, Jesus is telling the disciples that they are to reject the worldly values of status, of greatness, in order to enter the kingdom of God. They are not to presume that they can enter the kingdom of God simply because of their closeness to Jesus. Instead, they must recognize that they have nothing, nothing to warrant their entry into the kingdom of God. They must come in utter dependence on Jesus and Jesus alone to enter. See, the very idea of receive means that one has to willingly take the mercy of God from a passive position. See, the entry pass to the kingdom of God cannot be earned. How can anyone enter the kingdom of God? Firstly, we are to reject worldly values that permit sin and take on the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. And secondly, we are to reject worldly values that breed pride and receive the kingdom of God like a child, utterly dependent on God. And lastly, we are to reject the worldly values that hide idolatry and depend on the grace of God in Christ Jesus. See, verse 17 tells us that Jesus was setting out on his journey when a man ran up and knelt before him and he asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, two things we can observe about this man. Firstly, he is probably sincere in his question. See, unlike the Pharisees who came to test Jesus, his posture tells us that he's eager to know the answer to his question. And secondly, his question actually betrays his worldview and his values. See, he asked Jesus what he must do. That means that he believed that outward behavior and actions is the requirement needed for eternal life. It is believed that one can inherit eternal life if he complied to moral laws. So Jesus challenged his worldview and, and his values by asking him a question, which we know by now is Jesus' modus operandi. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I don't think the man was using flattery when, when he called Jesus a good teacher. He sincerely acknowledged that Jesus is someone extraordinary in his teachings and actions. However, Jesus is challenging him to consider, to re-evaluate the definition of good and whether anyone can really be good enough to inherit eternal life. Jesus wanted him to examine and include himself to be not good enough before God. Jesus then laid out the second half of the Ten Commandments, generally speaking, in verse 19. And why did Jesus keep on into the second half? Perhaps they are more objectively, you know, and, and outwardly observable, perhaps. But I suspect Jesus may be suggesting to this man that he can't keep the first half. Nonetheless, this man was confident to say that he kept all these commandments since young. Now, that's not to say that he kept all the commandments to perfection, but it's to say that even if he fails, he will make the right restitution, you know, and make the right sacrifices to overcome them. See, he was confident to say the least, and perhaps expecting Jesus to approve of him and say, oh, yes, you will have eternal life. If all, if everyone can get to go to the kingdom of God, is you. But no, Jesus didn't say that. Verse 21 tells us, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now Jesus didn't make this seemingly cruel statement to destroy him, so to speak. The fact that Jesus loved him tells us that Jesus was actually inviting him to follow him. But he needed to correct and challenge his presumptions and his values. However, this man couldn't comply to that, for he was very wealthy. This man came seeking for affirmation that he has done enough to inherit eternal life. But it seems that he didn't really want this eternal life that badly. He was not willing to make the exchange. 
he valued his wealth more than eternal life. See, his hidden idolatry is exposed and he left disheartened and sorrowful. You know, one of the reality shows that uh, I like to watch with my family is MasterChef. Now, I'm not a foodie and I can't cook apart from instant noodles, you know, if you consider that cooking. But I will join in the rest of my family, you know, who is really keen to watch the show. And there's often one, if not two, of the episodes where all the contestants have to choose you know, the other contestants to form a team, right? On opposing teams, they compete against each other. Now, who would they choose? Without a doubt, they will choose the most qualified and the most capable contestant to be part of their team. Now, that's the surest way to win and to proceed to the next round, right? So for the Jews, the foremost and best person to enter the kingdom of God is presumed to be this man. He was morally upright, and he kept the Torah to a T. Furthermore, he was wealthy. Now, being wealthy from a Jewish perspective means that a person is richly blessed by God. So if anyone is in the front door of the kingdom of God, it will be a man like him. Hence, when Jesus say in, says in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples were amazed to mean in, they are in shock disbelief. And Jesus went on to say in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the camel is the largest animal, land animal native to Palestine. And the hole of the needle is indeed one of the smallest holes around. Honestly, at my age, I, I can't even put a string through that needle now. As such, it is not just difficult but impossible for the camel to go through the hole of the needle. Who then can be saved, the disciple asked, as they were exceedingly astonished. See, their worldview and their values, like the man, were totally demolished and turned upside down by Jesus' words. The answer is then clear from Jesus. It is impossible from the perspective of man. For no one left to ourselves will be willing and capable to inherit eternal life by our own efforts. See, the entry past to the kingdom of God cannot be purchased by our good works. No matter how good a veneer we have in our outward behavior, our idolatry will be exposed if Jesus digs deep enough into our hearts. But the good news is, my friends, is that while it is impossible with man, Jesus says it is possible with God. Now what does that mean? It means that God can enable us by His grace to change our hearts so that we will be willing to exchange anything for the entry pass to His kingdom. See, by the work of the Holy Spirit, God can convict us that there is nothing more valuable than eternal life with God. 
And when we are willing to do that, God will not give us, will not only give us that eternal life, but He will also reward us hundredfold in this life with the love and the hospitality of the worldwide brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does that mean for us? Firstly, is to ask ourselves the tough question, right? The tough question of what will we be willing to exchange for eternal life? What is something or someone that we will prize above God and His kingdom? See, for the man in the third encounter, it is his wealth and possessions. Now, Jesus is not saying that wealth is condemned by God and poverty is, you know, is advocated as ideal. That's not his point. However, wealth can easily be a barrier to faith. In fact, it does not matter whether you are rich or poor. We can all struggle with wealth, money, and possessions. If you have little, your focus will be to get more. If you have much, then you may be focused on holding on to what you have, if not growing that wealth. See, at the heart of wealth, it is the false promise and the hope of security, of indulgence, and the power over others. That is why it can be the most subtle and yet most powerful idol. So Jesus knew that well. As we learn from the parable of the, of the soil you know, or the seed. See Mark chapter 4 verse 18 to 19 says, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Or perhaps for some of us, we will not struggle so much with wealth, but we may struggle with other idols in our lives. See, we, put a lot of, we can put a lot of energy and our time into it so much that everything else is put on hold. It can be our pleasure, our grades, our careers, our health, or our marriage. What if God was to ask you to give that up and follow Him in order to inherit eternal life? How would you respond? And if God is not going to give you your desires, what would you do? You know, just the other day, I read this testimony of uh, this Christian lady called Leah Church. It's found on the Gospel Coalition website. She loves basketball and trained to run laps ever since she was like seven years old. And her dream was to play for the University of North Carolina, you know, a, div a Division I college. See, by God's providence, she was given a scholarship to study there. 
So the whole family was elated and, she, and they all cried that you got in into this college. And for two years, she worked hard. She did very well for her studies and she improved her game, her game with great stats. However, she had a change of coach who was not a Christian after two years. And things began to change. She was often singled out and she felt lonely and she was miserable. And in her own words, she said, I started seeing that there were expectations for me to participate in the party lifestyle and condone things that didn't line up with my biblical beliefs. I chose not to drink and I'm choosing to save myself for marriage. I said no to a lot of things which made team bonding challenging. And then the coach came out with a list of causes that the team could be supporting. And she wasn't going to compromise because they went against biblical principles. So in the end, she concluded that her lifelong dream of playing basketball wasn't worth it in light of eternity. She quit the team and ended her dream as a basketball player. Now that is what Leah Church was willing to give up in order to follow Jesus, a dream that she had since she was seven years old at least. There was nothing too valuable for her in exchange for Jesus and his kingdom. So my friends, what do you think Jesus will ask of you? And what will your response be? And secondly, what this Bible passage tells us is that we cannot presume that we can enter the kingdom of God on our own merits. See, we cannot look at our material blessings, our intelligence, our, our capabilities, our good behavior, and our social status to determine our entry into the kingdom of God. As one commentator says, a person who leads an exemplary life, who even endears himself to the Son of God, can still be an idolater. So do not be deluded or deceived by your middle to high-class high life and even your involvement in church ministry. And to think that God will open the gates of the kingdom of God wide open as if you earn it. But similarly, for some of us who do not have such material blessings, good behavior and social status, we must not think that we will never be good enough to inherit eternal life because we will never be good enough. Perhaps you may be struggling with certain sins in your life and you constantly fail. You may even have a failed marriage and now a divorcee. You may have even committed a crime and paid for it in prison. But my friends, hear then the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. With man it is impossible, but all things are possible with God. 
God can make any self-sufficient and proud person to give up their idols. And He can forgive any sinner who comes to Him in repentance and faith because He has died on the cross for our sins. He has paid for it all. He has made what is impossible, possible. So my friends, do not come to Jesus confident in your own works like the rich man. But come to Jesus like a child who has nothing to bring in your hands except an utter dependence on His grace and on His mercy. Let us go to God in prayer. Shall we all stand? Dear Heavenly Father, we, we do not presume that we can come to you on our own merits. Search our hearts, O Lord, and expose our secret sins and our subtle idols that we have justified and hidden behind a veneer of respectability and moral behavior. May you convict our hearts to reject the world's values that goes against your upside-down kingdom and come humbly before you in forgiveness and repentance. And we hold on to the promise, the promise of your grace and your acceptance made possible by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this we pray, in your son's name. Amen.